From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of an interview of Mabel Clark conducted by David Leonard on December 15, 1976. This material was originally recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on July 24, 2020. This interview is being recorded with Mrs. George Long Clark, Mrs. Mabel Clark, on the 15th of December, 1976. Now, Mrs. Clark, to begin with, perhaps we can talk a little bit about your parents and uh, their early history in Ontario and their coming west to the Sturgeon area. Yes, my mother and father were both born in Meaford, Ontario, which is near Georgian Bay, and uh, they both were members of a large family, I think nine in each family, and uh, of course they had to go out and work and to, to help to support the younger ones, and uh, my mother and father, uh, my mother's name was Annie Laycock, and uh, she married my father in in early about 1877, I think. And uh, so, in the soil where they were grew up and and lived was very poor, and they found it hard to make a living. And my mother's people came to thought they would like to come to Manitoba, but they found a uh, very poor area there. They stopped in Brandon, Manitoba, and there was really no wood or... That was the end of the rail at that yes, time, I believe. Yes, and uh, they spent two years there, but my father said that he had to go to maybe about 20 miles of oxen to get enough wood to keep them warm. And uh, so... It sounds like conditions were about as bad there then as they were up here. <laughs> um, my uncle, my father's oldest brother previously, had come west with a survey party in 1877. And uh, they spent the winter in up near Lake St. Anne. And when he was going back with the cart and the cayuses, as he called them, uh, he went through the Sturgeon District and he liked the soil, most of all, and the water, the Sturgeon River, and the wood of the great uh, growth of trees. And he thought that was where he wanted to make his home. So he went back to Winnipeg, and in the company of uh, a Mr. Nicholson, in 1879, he came back. Uh, they, they wintered in a little, uh, sort of a dugout in the mail and uh, spent the winter there. They put up poplar trees and, and covered them with snow and existed through the winter and then they filed on the homestead. And, uh, and after my uncle had been here two years, he wrote back to Manitoba and told my father about the wonderful soil and the conditions. And in the spring, I think it was May, my mother and father started out That's to 1881, 1881 yeah. to uh, come west. And um, there was a little girl, my oldest sister was two years old. They had the Red River cart and uh, they, had, they had three oxen and two cows 
and uh, in the cart there were a few chickens and two pigs, I understand. And uh, my mother said that the railroad had reached Brandon, Manitoba, and they stopped there for a little while, and she washed clothes and prepared some food for the journey ahead. And then they left on the Carlton Trail. I don't remember of her, them saying that uh, they were in company of any other uh, group that were coming west at that time, but they came on the Carlton Trail, and I remember them saying that uh, that sometimes when the mosquitoes were so bad that they would have to travel at night, and of course there were no bridges, so. When they came to the rivers, they had to drive the oxen into the river, and my mother and father got in the cart, and they just sort of floated down the river till they found a place they could come up on the other side. Yeah. And uh, they remained in Battleford for a while. I think at that time, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Battleford was the capital of the Northwest Territories. Yeah. And they remained there for a while, and then they finally started their trek towards Edmonton. And um, they reached Edmonton in September. And uh, out at the Sturgeon, my my uncle had erected a small log cabin, and uh, there were there was no floor in it, and there was no stove. They had a mud fireplace. And that was the stove they had. And across the mud fireplace hung an iron a, an iron rod with an iron pot on it. And that was the only cooking facilities they had. Although my mother used to said she made bread with a reflector oven. That was reflector oven. Yes. That was a piece of tin that got real hot. And then they put the bread up beside it, and the heat from the tin would bake the bread. And, uh, and in order to survive that winter, they killed one of the oxen that helped to haul them up. And with that and prairie chickens, why, they had boiled ox and barley flour biscuits because my father said he only had $7 when he got here. Did they hunt anything else? Uh, the well, they had uh, the milk from the cows, uh -huh. and that was about the only food they had. I see. And uh, nothing in the line of vegetables or anything of that sort. My mother's nearest neighbor was seven miles. Uh -huh. And then in uh, November of um, 1881, uh, my oldest brother was born. Mother gave birth to a baby boy and he was the first, I believe it was the first child born out in that area. And um, the hardships that they endured, I don't know how my mother ever survived, but that winter my uncle and my father took the oxen and went out and cut trees down, got them ready to build a house for my parents. And when they finally did build a house. The land was not surveyed, and they built the house on my uncle's land. <laughs> 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 and uh, 
uh, in that log house is where all of us were born, except my oldest sister. And oh, uh, you say all of all of you. And there were eight of us. Eight, of you all eight children all together, and I'm the youngest. <laughs> That's not too nice. <laughs> when the older ones are taken away and you're the last one that's left, why, it's not too pleasant, but they built a home and at the Sturgeon, and I think in 1883 the first church service was held in my mother's home. And uh, it was supposed to be the first Sunday after the full moon. And Reverend Mr. Baird came out from the city, from Edmonton. It wasn't a city then. And uh, held a service, and the people walked, and they brought a little bit of food, and and they had the church service. And uh, there was a great feeling of companionship. And uh, in those days, everyone helped one another. And um, whenever new settlers came, the men went out and helped to get out logs and put up the buildings and make them comfortable. And then um, finally there were enough children in the community, I believe, in the district to begin a school. When and was the school begun? Pardon? When was the school begun? I think it was 1885. 85. 85 or 86. Uh -huh that the first school was started and uh, some of the first uh, scholars was uh, one of the Wilson girls, uh, a daughter of D.B. Wilson uh -huh. and um, Mrs. Craig uh, was a daughter of D.B. Wilson and my brother and my sister were scholars there and uh, there were quite a few um, different distinguished teachers uh, at that Nemea school. I believe that um, it was before my time, but Brigadier General Stewart that uh, formerly live, uh, lived his later life in Lethbridge, William Stewart was a, one of the first teachers at the Mayo. And uh, he lived to a great age, and I think just a year or two ago he passed away. And um, most of the teachers, I don't know why, but most of the teachers at the mail boarded at my mother's home. <laughs> now, if you'd like to tell Now, who, uh, who were several of these students in the school? <clears throat> the, um, one of the, uh, five of the original class attended the, the 50th anniversary of, uh, of the Nemeo school, and, uh, it was held in the in the community hall at the mail, and there were uh, letters were received uh, from those that were not present. Some were received from Mrs. White of Calgary; she was a Wilson, and John Sutherland of Com of uh, Kelowna, and um, Mrs. Craig. She told of of how she came to come to the mail. And uh, Mr. Carson, the late Mr. Carson, MLA for Sturgeon, he uh, presented them with the uh, uh, flowers and or a, a, a cup in memory of uh, of the students of those early days. And it was a very, very uh, 
uh, I think, a special occasion to think that there were that many left after those uh, 50 years ago. I, myself, um, attended the male school, and uh, all during my time at the male school, I never had a lady teacher. They were all oh, men. <laughs> and most of them boarded at my mother's home. And uh, it, we had, I guess when I started the school, there were about 20, 24 or so, and we had a barn out at the back. And um, of course, we had to ride or drive. I, I rode horseback most of my days because it was two miles. And in the winter time, we, uh, my brother and I, used to drive in the cutter. My youngest brother, and um, we, uh, in the spring, we used to have Arbor Day, and and when Arbor Day came, why the boys had to clean the barn, and the girls, we all had to clean the windows and and scrub the desks and scrub the floors and. And we didn't have the uh, janitors and so on, and we took a pride in our school. And we planted trees and we planted flowers and and we really enjoyed uh, doing it. And on Arbor Day, after we had finished all our chores, why some of the parents would come with a ice cream freezer and some cake and cookies and goody things, and we'd go down by the river and have a, a picnic a sort of a picnic, maybe a ball game, and, but we all ha always had to get home in time to, for chores because there were cows to milk and, and pigs to feed and chickens to feed and, and that, and we were all, we all had our own uh, chores that we had to attend to. About how many students would there be in? The About 24, 20, 24 to 30 somewhere in that area and uh, oh we always had ball games and we had our own amusements and we even used to have the ponies that we rode to school on we used to have horse races. <laughs> yeah, right. Well uh, you had horse races and you played baseball. I yes and uh, football. And football. Yeah well soccer they call it now. I see. Yeah, yes okay. soccer. Were there any other sports? No, I, in the winter time, of course, we skated, and uh, we had coasting parties, and of course there were box socials, and every winter, uh, as, uh, as years went on, we always got up a amateur play and put it on, went around to the different districts and would put on a play, and that was a lot of fun and amusement. and and kept everyone interested. We even, uh, as I was getting older, we used to put on minstrel shows. Minstrel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we made our own amusement. There were no radios and there were no TV or anything along that line, so we um, had our own amusement. And we used to sometimes hook about put four horses on a big hay rack and even go into town to skate and skate to music. That was something of a novelty. Is that right? Wow. <laughs> I can well, uh, speaking about radios, I well remember the first radio 
that I heard of, and I couldn't believe that um, the sound came over that radio. Uh, Twelve miles away, there were a group of people in Edmonton that put on a concert called the Igloo Hunt, the Igloo people, and they, uh, I remember Harry Cole, he was a man that used to live out around the mill, and he had a great voice to sing, and we had uh, uh, poems, readings, and so on, and when I heard that someone put a an earphone to their ear and heard a program in Edmonton, I didn't believe it. I couldn't see how it would come unless it came on the telephone wire. But after a while, it was explained to me, and we had what we called little crystal sets. And they were little square sets, and you had to be very careful that you got <laughs> the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah. But it was really something to think that we had the, uh, was able to hear uh, music in the city without listening on the phone. And uh, but all the, those days, I have very very happy memories in some instances. But going back to talk about my mother, uh, in 1893 there was an epidemic of diphtheria went through the Nemeo community, and um, some new settlers that had come in from the east, they brought the, I guess it was in their clothing, and in the, the epidemic spread, and my mother lost three children practically all at one time. My oldest sister was then about 14 or 15 years old, and she died, and the brother, nine years old, died, and the baby died, and they are all laid away in the male cemetery. And uh, those are some of the things, the heartaches that my mother had. My father was passed away at quite a early age, what we would call now. He was 64, and uh, we all he was not sick too long, but. He certainly worked very, very hard trying to build up a home and break up the land and and all the all the hardships that go with early pioneering. <clears throat> well, could we talk a little bit about uh, your father, Mrs. Clark? Well, uh, my father was interested in the uh, betterment, making things better, and for the people that lived in the district, and uh, he served on the school board as I really don't know just how long, but uh, he was instrumental in helping to form the first farm organization in Alberta. He was a... Which organization was this? That he was a charter member of the Society of Equity oh. that finally emerged into the USA. And uh, he was a director of the uh, USA and used to attend the conventions, and uh, that spurred him on. I remember quite well how he and Mr. D.W. Warner, who was also a uh, member of the of the first USA, how they went out and tried to get the railroad to make a uh, traffic deck on the bridge that crossed the, the Saskatchewan River, 
as we call the Clover Bar Bridge, when the first train was going to come in from the east, and uh, they went around getting signatures and sending it to the government to see if they couldn't get a traffic deck on that bridge. And uh, there were, of course, a lot of coal mines out along the Saskatchewan River, and uh, it would have been an uh, easy way to get from one community to another. But their efforts failed, and I can remember as a young person, I was only 15 when my father passed away, and, and uh, I can remember how very upset he was about how they went ahead and built the bridge and, and uh, didn't put the traffic deck on. One other person, too, that is connected with my father's life was Sheridan Lawrence that made a name for himself up at, uh, in the North Country. Sugar, yeah. Yes. And when Sheridan Lawrence first came west, he worked uh, for my father and uh, helped with farm chores and I when I left home and was married there was still a table at my father's place that uh, at my home that Sheridan Lawrence had made and uh, he was a very very fine man and, and in one of his books that he has written I think it's Emperor of the Peace or, or uh, one of the books he mentions about how he came and learned something about farming from my father. And uh, we all felt it a very great loss the time of my father's death. There was just my oldest brother and I at home at that time. My youngest brother was, went to, uh, he was in the uh, agriculture school at Guelph taking a course. And from Guelph, he went to the First World War, enlisted in the war, and was overseas for four years. Was but your father involved in any, in any political activities at all? Not exactly. No, not exactly. He well, wasn't political. <laughs> he didn't have much education. Uh, that was a great hindrance, because when he was young, he had to get out and work for a living. and. Uh, when I, uh, I might say that when I go out to talk to the children at school uh, about the early days of the pioneers, I always tell them that in those days, the people had to work, <coughs> make their living, and especially off the land, because at, at, when my parents were growing up, they weren't making cars, they weren't making airplanes, they weren't making tractors. So they didn't need tires or anything of that sort. There was no industry to speak of, and you had to make your living uh, off the land. And uh, there were there was no welfare and no family allowance, no pensions, and so everyone uh, earned their bread by the sweat of their brow, as we might say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think that is why. As we grew older, how much we appreciate things. My mother lived on in the same house after my father died, and uh, she lived in the same place for 62 years and never had electricity. 
and never had running water. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know from my own experience, I think one of the greatest joys of my life was when I had the opportunity to press a button and the lights came on. <laughs> no more cleaning lamps and lanterns and <laughs> it was it was really a thrill or a joy that of a lifetime. And I don't think we appreciate all these things that the pioneers worked hard to get these things. And um, another instance I might uh, go back and say that one of the outstanding happenings in my parents' life was when the time of the real rebellion, my uncle had a diary and he said that he and Mr. Nicholson, Mr. Nicholson was a brother of the late Mrs. John Harold Sr. and uh, they were having tea, he said, and uh, a runner came in and said uh, the uh, Indians are at Fort Saskatchewan and you must take all the women and children to St. Albert to the fort and uh, you must hurry. And if anyone stays behind, they are not to have a light at night and they're not to have any smoke coming out of their stovepipe. So uh, Uncle Harry said he hurried up and he put straw in the wagon and um, he hit the horses up and went up to my, my uh, parents' place and he got my mother and the children and they all went to St. Albert, and I can remember my mother saying they they were there, I think, two nights before they found it was a false alarm. Were all the people in the area uh, taken to Yes, St. they all had to go to St. Albert. And the men went up on the hill, what we call Kelly's Hill, and they gathered there at night so they'd all be together if there was an attack. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the women just had to spread out straw on the floor in the fort, and I guess they had a great time trying to find enough to eat and find their own children and <laughs> <laughs> and survive uh, through it all, but they were mighty glad to get home and find out. And uh, in my uncle's diary, he never spoke uh, much about any trouble they had with the Indians, but he did say that he and... Uh, the late Mr. Charlie Carson were taking a load of uh, wheat to be made into flour somewhere down near Beaver Lake. And um, they were taking uh, the half of the pig they had butchered, and they were going to give that to the man that milled the flour. And uh, that was would be the pavement. And the Indian happened to see it. Indians were coming along the road and they happened to know the pork was there, and they told my uncle that he better hand over the pork or there would be trouble with it. So my uncle had to hand over the pork. In <laughs> <laughs> the years that followed, was there much tension with the Indians? No, there wasn't. No. There wasn't. But we often had, uh, when I was growing up, we often had Indians came and to the door and they would be selling moccasins and uh -huh. gloves and things like that. And in the fall, where our home was, there was, oh, so many choke cherries just hanging, just great, great amounts. And the Indians used to like those choke cherries. They made it into a sort of a 
something like pemmican yeah ground it up and they would come in the fall and it was quite amusing to i can remember them bringing the the babies in the moss bags and standing them up and <laughs> and but no they were very peaceful yeah. and they were always very appreciative of anything that you did for them yeah. yes indeed now mrs clark perhaps we can talk a little bit about uh, yourself uh, when you were born where you were born and your childhood and the years that followed <clears throat> well i was born uh, um in April 1897 and uh, in the log house where we were all born except my oldest sister and when I was six years old my parents uh, after a lot of hard work and many hours of toil and so on they built a, a frame home and uh, the walls were plastered and uh, oh goodness we got with my mother selling butter and eggs and and in the summertime we had to pick wild fruit and she sold that and she was able to get a few nice pieces of furniture. I well remember how delighted we were when she was a, they brought home a sideboard from Edmonton and we were able to put some pretty dishes on it and, and we got nice curtains and we felt that we were very happy indeed and uh, after a few years my parents bought a piano the piano that i still have here in my home and i guess that piano is 70 years old and um, but it's still in good working order but um, when i started to school when i was six years old and one of the classmates i had was mrs uh, Jim Paul it was formerly Hazel Carson of Nemeo and um, she was a year older than I was but uh, we started the school and she had started the year previously but my first teacher was Mr. Uh, Ted Mitchell uh, later he went to he became a professor and and uh, lived the later part of his life down in Austin in Texas and uh, oh we had a Mr. Bernard and a Mr. Patello and a Mr. Martin and, and uh, Hudson Scott and I never had a lady teacher until I went to boarding school after my father died. Well, why did you go to boarding school? To the uh, ladies college in Red Deer and uh, that was a very pleasant experience, although my father died in September and uh, I went away and uh, started the term in January. I took a business course and I also took music and met some wonderful friends, friends that, that over 60 years ago and I still correspond with them. One of them was the youngest daughter of the late George Lane. Mildred Lane and through the years we have corresponded but sorry to say Mildred passed away this past summer but two other of the girls and some of the others I still correspond with and that was a great experience although it was I 
my first experience being away from home was pretty lonely soon after my father died. After I finished my course, I came home and I stayed at home with my mother and my brother and worked on the farm and uh, until 1920 when I married uh, Gordon Clark. I had known him for the, the Clark family came to Nemeo uh, in about 1905, 95 or 6 and uh, they had the farm where the first uh, part of Nemea Airport uh, it was called the Cuthbert Farm and uh, they moved there and lived in a small log house and they came, they started the school Edna and Gordon and Bessie at the Mayo School. We were married in 1920 and that was the year of the bad winter, the bad heavy winter and um, it lasted from the middle of October till the end of April and uh, we had we bought this farm up three miles north of Cardiff. It was a farm that was the soil had been polluted with pod mustard and quack grass and we had a pretty hard struggle for quite a few years that we didn't know whether we would ever make it and sometimes we were discouraged. We the first five horses we had all died with swamp fever and some of them weren't paid for and all when we had to pay up the note well, all we had was the halter <laughs> and uh, we <laughs> we knew all about hard times and and uh, but we just kept battling through and battling through I boarded teachers the Rose Ridge school was across the road from where we lived and I boarded the teachers and and tried our best but we had to pay the same the same interest when we bought the farm wheat was about four five dollars a bushel and the first good crop we had in 1930 wheat had gone down to 30 we sold a carload of wheat for 31 cents but we had to still pay the same rate of interest as when it was four dollars a bushel and um so it was no wonder that the uh, Alberta wheat pool and so on came into existence. My husband's brother sold wheat for 19 cents a bushel. And uh, we didn't know through the time of the Depression whether we were ever going to make it or not. But we went into poultry. And uh, with poultry and cows, you had enough coming in. I made butter and we sold chickens and we sold eggs and we had enough that way to keep the grocery bill paid and of course we took wheat and had it ground into flour and we had our own flour and we built up some cattle by the kindness of some of my relatives they gave us cows and young cattle and we were able to struggle along then the roads were very bad. We were five miles from any kind of a road to get our produce out. And we heard of a farm at Clover Bar that was for sale at a reasonable price. And the man was a coal miner and he had never developed the land. It was all heavy timber. 
and we bought the farm in 1942 and moved in 1943. And those were the happiest years of my life was in Clover Bar. The people were so friendly and neighborly and they helped us get started. We were strangers, but they certainly took us in. And uh, they helped us build the buildings and give us a start because we had to break the land. The Indians... So there was a case, it was a case of starting all over again. Yes, well. the Indians came and we hired Indians from out near Winterburn and they cleared the first 40 acres and the bush was so thick the ground was just covered with trees and we had to clear the trees. And then uh, my husband and I, we broke the first 40 acres with a McCormick during with the uh, extension rims on and uh, we cleaned that land but oh what beautiful wonderful soil I just can't tell you how wonderful it was to walk behind the breaking plow and see that wonderful soil and uh, it's regrettable that in these days that uh, that industry is taking over a lot of that good soil that was so productive and uh, there was good drainage, and and uh, I think it was one of the garden places of Alberta, that soil, and uh, around Clover Bar. And uh, oh, we saw a large development there, of course. We saw how it grew, and we managed to get a barn built, and bit by bit, but our first building, um, when we arrived there was a chicken house. We lived in a cook car for the summer and uh, we were able to have, get enough money to buy some lumber and we built a chicken house and the first winter, the first year we lived in the chicken house in one end of it and we had chickens in one end and we lived in the other. <laughs> 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 but uh, we had, we always I don't know, it was a different feeling and and uh, we enjoyed all those struggles. I know I did. And I think the greatest thrill of my life was when we got the electricity. What year was that? In, 19, in 1944, we 44. got the electricity. <laughs> and, uh, and I think in 1948, we uh, were able to borrow enough money. My husband said he was tired of carrying water from the well to the house and so on and we got enough money to put in the waterworks, drill a well beside the house and put in waterworks and that was another great thrill of a lifetime to turn the tap on and get the water without carrying it. I see, yes. <laughs> but I had, uh, after my, the three children uh, died. There was my oldest brother that was born when mother and father came here. And then I had a sister, Phoebe Long, that married Lloyd Crozier, another old-time family of Navajo. And my brother that's living now, Mr. Stanley Long, he was an in steam engineer. In 1921, he was unfortunately lost his right arm in an accident, but he carried on through the years. And uh, then my youngest brother, as I say, went to 
agriculture school and then he went overseas and he passed away in the veterans home where he spent the last eight years of his life and uh, I'm the last one that's around and <laughs> I have I try to keep active and I like going to the schools and on the heritage program and talking to the children that's one of my greatest joys and the camera club when did you uh when did you begin speaking to the uh, over two years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, they come, they make arrangements for me, and they come and pick me up and and take me, and and I just love talking to the children. What sort of things do you try to impress upon the, the children? Well, I try to impress upon the children the hardships that the pioneers went through, and um, how they struggled without the help that the people get nowadays. Like, as I say, there was no welfare, no family allowance, or anything along that line. And uh, I like to impress on the children that it's their, their, I have my life behind me. They have their life ahead. And it's up to them to make the uh, country what they would like it to be. And uh, I, I'd like to see them stress the neighborliness and the friendship and do away with the, oh, I don't know, in these days there seems to be a lot of strife and violence and and so on, but uh, I like to see the friendliness, I think, mm -hmm. and good neighborliness, yes. I think. Now, Mrs. Clark, your uh, early childhood paralleled the period that saw the rapid growth of Edmonton from a small town into a vast metropolis shortly after the turn of the century. Would you have any ideas on <laughs> Edmonton uh, and its history at this time, the developments therein? Well, um, of course, when my parents came, as I said before, the uh, population was 263. As far as I remember, I can remember about the first automobiles coming to Edmonton and how we used to have to drive. We figured that we lived 12 miles from Edmonton. And um, we used to drive in with the horses and the, uh, in the wintertime it was the sleigh and the summertime it was the Democrat. And I can remember of coming to town. I usually came to town about twice in the summer. Once was to the exhibition. And another time was just to go around and look at the stores and come in when my mother brought, when they brought their butter and eggs to be delivered around to their customers. And uh, I can remember one time distinctly of meeting a car along on the mail road. And the horses got so frightened that they reared up in the air and, and we wondered if they were going to tip the buggy over or what was going to happen. My father got out and held the horses by the head, and um, the man slowed, that was driving the car, he slowed down, and my father called to him and told him to hurry up and get past before the horses died of fright, because uh, the horses used to be just frightened to death. I, I remember distinctly one time of driving a team of horses on the mail road, 
and they got frightened and one horse reared up in the air and and when it came down they were both on the one side of the tongue and I had to get out and unharness them and unhitch them right in the center of the road. The poor horses were so frightened and uh, along uh, on Jasper Avenue um, they were Johnson Walkers used to have an old store. The uh, there were hitching rails there, and sometimes my parents would hitch their horses there and uh, tie them up and feed them hay and, and oats and and uh, and then we'd walk around and I can remember of going to what we call the uh, hotel uh, at the top of the McDougal Hill. Uh, I can't. Uh, just now recall the name of it, but uh, we'd think it was wonderful and my father paid 25 cents for a meal and that was really something to to have a meal away from home at a restaurant. But of course, mother always, we always had a lot of friends that mother and father take the eggs and the butter too and we were invited in. And, and uh, it was a great experience in going to the fair. And so in the winter time, why uh, <coughs> we uh, we used to drive in. They'd let us come in before Christmas to see the the all the decorations in the windows, and and uh, that was really a thrill. And I remember one time of of uh, going home from town along on the mail road. The uh, we upset in the snow. The sleigh slid to one side, and uh, my father had bought a, a case. I guess it'd be a, maybe 24 shells for the gun because we had uh, quite a few coyotes, and uh, they used to shoot the coyotes, and then we'd have the hides to sell. And I can remember being dumped out in the snow. And when we got dumped out in the snow, uh, the the lid came off these cartridges, and they fell down in the snow. And oh boy, it was so cold. And yet we here we were digging down in the snow, trying to get all these cartridges. On <laughs> <laughs> many a time, we used to upset in the snow. And before we left, the night before we left to go to town, we put bricks in the oven. And uh, then in the morning we wrapped the bricks all up in old sweaters and old underwear and kept them at our feet because it was a two-mile journey to Edmonton. Two from, miles, yeah. And when we got to Norwood Boulevard, there was a little white house back off. I would say it would be on the southeast corner of the boulevard, 97th Street and Norwood Boulevard. It was there until a few years ago. And when we got near to that house, we were getting close to Edmonton. <laughs> About how long did it take to get from your home to Edmonton? About two hours. About two hours. Yes, yeah. two hours, if if the roads were good. Yeah. But I can remember the summer before my father passed away, my mother and uh, father drove to Edmonton to a wedding. And uh, they had the team in the buggy. And coming home, it had rained an awful lot, and along where Castle Downs is located now, uh, in that area, there was a lot of gumbo. 
and the wheels plugged up with mud and gumbo till they wouldn't go around. And my father had just bought a new suit of clothes to go to the wedding, and he had to get out, and with his bare hands, he had to pull the mud out between the spokes of the wheels so the wheels would go around. (laughs) 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 And, uh, oh yes, we had, uh, when we would go for sleigh rides and so on, we often, many a times, uh, I might say I was upset out in the snow and had to scramble out again and and get gather up the blankets. And we used to always have what we call cowhide robes. Whenever we uh, would butcher an animal, why we took the hide to have it tanned, and that was our robes. Uh-huh. And uh, they kept us warm though in the winter. I see. Yes. Indeed. Mrs. Clark, were there any outstanding individuals in Edmonton that uh, uh, come across your memories to any great extent? Well, yes, they were um, friends that we had in the early days. Uh, I recall um, Mrs. Uh, the late Mrs. Richard Secord Sr. was the cousin of my mother's. She was a school teacher and uh, came out uh, in the early days and she taught I believe one year at, in the Nemeo school and uh, we uh, Mrs. Secord of course her name was York and she had quite a few brothers and uh, they were in the real estate uh, business in Edmonton and we often used to go to the home of Archie York, and there was John York, and there was Ed York. They were all brothers of Mrs. Secord and were cousins of my mother's. Then I recall Mr. and Mrs. Sanderson. Mr. Sanderson. Is this George Sanderson? Yes. Yes. He was uh, a locksmith, and uh, we visited there, and there was the, uh, there were the Lubies and the Beals, and uh, that I can recall, and of course the Agers in the later part, um, both families of Agers and Dr. Sloan, and Mr. Uh, Armstrong, George Armstrong, was a former mayor of Edmonton, the Agers and the Sloans, and um, they all came from Lion's Head, Ontario, in a sort of a colony, and we visited back and forth with uh, them in in the early days and they used to come out to our place on a sleigh ride the eggers and and sometimes they'd bring a gallon of oysters and mother my mother'd make a big pot full of oyster soup and they'd have that before they went home <laughs> but uh, yes there they were a great many and when I go to the school I try to tell the children about uh, old Saul up with a character around Edmonton and I think there's quite a lot written about him and uh, there was you have a lot of personal memories of old yes, Saul yes yes I yeah. do remember him very well very well and I also remember the time of course of the flood when the river uh, overflowed and its banks and the people lost their homes down in the flats and and the buildings that floated down the river. 
I, I was not able to go to town to see it, but some of my brothers and sisters did. But it was certainly a tragic event, and they wondered if the low-level bridge was going to go. And I remember them having the trains loaded with gravel and sitting on the bridge to try to hold it down. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mrs. Clark, for uh, a number of years now, you've been heavily involved in the Edmonton Camera Club. Do you have uh, much to say about that? Yes. uh, I might say that in 1961, my husband passed away suddenly on the curling rink, and, and I moved into the city, but... Previous to that, I had belonged to the camera club and was interested in photography. Uh, It was the fellowship, I think, in the camera club that appealed to me as much as anything. And uh, we have uh, what we call regional outings. And in that way, I've been able to get around to see a lot of the communities in Alberta that I had never been to before. We had a, re- a regional outing one year in Medicine Hat, and we've had one in uh, twice. We have been to Claire's home, and Calgary, and Red Deer, and Brooks, and uh, it's very, very fine meeting people from all over the province that you are interested, that are interested in photography, and. Uh, the pleasure of, of taking something that appeals to you and then being able to see it on the screen. And uh, Dr. McGregor over here that's a retired professor from the university, he is one of our members, Dr. Carlisle, that was born and raised close to Edmonton. He's a veterinary doctor. And we have Dr. Revel, who is a dentist in Edmonton. And we have a lot of different personalities and I have made friends through the camera club that are very very dear to me and I look forward to the meetings and getting together. I have two sons, one the oldest son Herbert graduated from the University of Alberta in 1947 in engineering. At present uh, he is in Tulsa, Oklahoma and my youngest son Alan uh, graduated from the university in 1962 and got his BA degree. He's now working on a master's degree and he teaches in a community college in Victoria. So I have no family here, only my brother who is in the hospital. Yes, I must say though, you are quite active. You're still winning awards for your <laughs> photographs and uh, you're still active with the school. So, yes. Uh, Things are still going very strong for you. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Mrs. Clark. Uh, It's been very enjoyable. (laughs) This material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton Archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives at edmonton.ca, by phone at 780-496-8711, or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.